Welcome to the More Than Birds podcast, where we talk about more than birds. So today we're here with Matt Seidensticker, owner of the Naturalist Mercantile in Missoula, mm-hmm. and also a biologist. Oh, yeah. So That's how right. long have you had the, the store open, Matt? You know, we uh, it's only been about a month since January 4th. Um, We've been working on the project for, I guess, about eight months last, since last May. Um, but, yeah, it's just it's been really recent here. So kind of an odd time to start, you know, in the middle of winter, I guess. Gives us a good baseline of where we're at, I guess, however. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and, and when you guys opened up the store, you know, what, what came up with the idea? Did you see a... There a hole in the market here, or did you just want to do something different? You know, there's three three main reasons, really. The first being that sort of this um, kind of this global popularity, if you will, of, of wildlife watching and, and nature study. Um, you know, for example, one-third of the U.S. population feeds birds. Um, so, you know, there's definitely a strong industry there. And then the second reason was just kind of my experience and passion um, in the biological sciences and in nature. And the third reason was, yes, that there we saw an opportunity to, to fill this gap that was sort of left open when the old Bird Watchers Country Store here in Missoula mm-hmm. closed. And so we thought, well, you know, given those three things, why, why not? Let's take a shot and see what happens. Um, there's, there's definitely the, the market here for all that. And uh, so that's kind of how it came about. And so you call yourself the bird, the naturalist mercantile, mm-hmm. and you're doing optics, field guides, books, Bird, bird feeding supplies. You have a kids section. I really like the kids yeah, section. Yeah, yeah. You know, the, the little naturalist was um, was something that we really kind of wanted to to incorporate into the store, just because you know you always hear about you know no you know last child in the woods and all this stuff and getting kids outside. So we we thought, well, you know, it'd be a good way to to maybe try to inspire kids, you know, to, to get out there and explore explore nature a little bit more and and to go along, you know that. There wasn't. There's nothing really like that in Missoula, where mm-hmm. you know you can go to and get nature-oriented toy stuff for your kids. So that was a real important part of our uh, our whole model here. You know? Right. And I always, I'm always amazed people open up a store, but you know, how do you track down all the you know what you want to sell and <laughs> the suppliers and how do you do all that? I mean, well, I tell you what, that's probably what takes up ninety percent of my time. Really, um, it's it's quite a process. I mean, you have to. You know, you kind of have to contact these guys. You, you find you find a product that you really like, and then, you know, you'll kind of search around, and you'll find people that are, are selling it and stuff. But really, you got to kind of track it right to the manufacturer. Um, for a small business like us, you know, we need to have pretty good wholesale pricing, you know, because we want to we want to keep costs down as much as possible and make it as affordable as possible for our customers. So it can be quite a challenge. I uh, I was actually spent most of the day yesterday filling out you know, <laughs> credit applications and ordering forms for stack pull books and the publishers uh you know with the kid stuff and the seed and the bird feeders um it's a little more straightforward because there's not so many um so many manufacturers with the books so i can't believe tell you how many publishers there are out there yeah <laughs> and how many different books so you know you'll you'll get in with like um like globe pequot press for example they represent i like I don't even know, like 20 different publishers or something. You know? right. So it, it can be difficult, and that's where we spend a lot of our time. But it's just being diligent and being patient and, right. and putting in the time. And so you're your partner, uh-huh. both in terms of business and personal life, that's partner right. yeah, is yeah. here with you. Yeah, that's what I – I guess I've been calling her my, my double agent a little bit in that <laughs> regard. That uh, She's been um, super supportive, and Peggy uh, you know, was a wildlife biology student um, a number of years ago. And then she, she kind of just, you know, moved on in life, but she's always been really interested in birds. Um, and I, I, you know, may have to concede this, that she may have a little bit more of the business touch than I do, you know, coming from a, a biology background. Um, it's been a steep learning curve for me. Right. You know, trying to understand all all the the concepts and lingo and, and this and that. So. I'm so the same way to go. <laughs> You know, it's tax time, and every time they're like, "Oh, fill out your tax," I'm like, "No, no, no I just hand it off to somebody." 
<laughs> well, that's I can't ex- be that's, bothered. <laughs> that's exactly what I do. And and filing the taxes for the business is something that I you know am not going to even think about. Doing. Right. Yeah. <laughs> and so you guys opened up. You had this space and you renovated the space and repainted it. Mm-hmm. Um, <clears throat> did you guys? really got the inside of this and start from scratch or was there a little bit here like the floor yeah you know fortunately um the previous tenants you know put in this this nice pergo flooring and then also uh the track lighting it was a an art gallery that was in here before us okay and so that um that really caught my eye when i when i came in and basically all we did was you know we put in the tile floor in the back um for the bird room there and then most of it was um kind of already here you know and then the cool part about it is is i you know i got connected with a builder that kind of lended his his creative vision and most of the stuff you see in here is uh, recycled reuse oh great yeah so this pergola structure over the the point of sale here was all you know old lumber out of the missoula mercantile mm-hmm. right next door and we got it all at home resource these cases that were um you know sitting on right now these are all from home resource and those wood benches so we really tried to take that approach to so you develop a new store by reusing by reusing other stuff. That's and, great. Yeah, and two reasons. You know, it helps us keep costs down, mm-hmm. and then and then you know it helps us uh, contribute to you know the whole the and whole green building thing. Right, and, and it definitely matches the business. You know, you're, yeah. you're like we're a sustainable business. At least our interior yeah. should be sustainable as much <laughs> as it can. <laughs> exactly. Be well. Exactly. And so, you know. What's as you open up the store? What's kind of been your biggest seller? Is it feed and supplies? Is that kind of been the, the base, or is it? Well, been- you know, I, I'd have to say that it's been pretty uh, pretty spread out. Actually, yeah. that has been really encouraging uh, to see that we've we've kind of sold a little bit of everything. You know, as it's getting more established here, you know, the the bird seed and the bird feeders are definitely mm-hmm. uh, becoming more and more. And then, of course, the books um, I think are going to be. Mm-hmm. kind of be one of our staples as well um, and but, you guys do custom orders if people come in and say yeah yeah i want such and such obscure title <laughs> yeah yeah we do we do and we uh, we really try to pay attention to our customers that way um even if it's something that they they don't really want themselves but a cool book they've seen or mm-hmm. you know i had pat little from the five valleys autobahn in here uh, yesterday actually he brought some a few books by that i had never seen so um that's kind of been the fun part is, you know. Right. You know, the customer service interaction is, is pretty neat. Um, well, and there seems to be a pretty large, you know, bird feeding community here in Missoula. You just have to kind of get them away from doing the Costco bulk yeah. bird seed. And, right. And you guys do bulk, and I heard free deliveries. We do. We do free <laughs> deliveries, yeah, which, you know, it's just the price per pound. And that was, that was something that, you know, I kind of uh, – Struck me as last summer when we were writing this up. You know, I was I watched a, an older gentleman, you know, struggling to carry out a fifty pound bag of sunflower from Ace. You know, and I'm thinking to myself, geez, you know, how could how could we do this? You know, to, to help to help people uh, make it easier on themselves. And and then the bulk thing too was was another thing that I that struck me. You know, because you go into these stores and. Nothing against them, but, you know, you kind of get pigeonholed into certain poundages. Mm-hmm. You know, you only get a three-pound bag of this or an eight-pound bag of that and stuff. Right. And so we kind of just really wanted to, you know, offer people the ability to just get what they need. Get what they need. Yeah. And when and you have a, this huge tree of feeders. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, that's the, the bird feeder extravaganza we're calling it. <laughs> So there's every conceivable feeder type there. Yes, yes, there is. There's everything, you know, there's new types. The, there's suet ball feeders on there. I don't know mm-hmm. if you've heard of the suet balls. Those no. are new. It's kind of a new new thing that um, there's only one place in the country that manufactures them, actually. Um, but that's just, you know, they're just, what they say, they're just suet balls. And you just you just throw them in rather, you know, versus the cakes. Mm-hmm. And it's a little more... Uh, Gives a little more aesthetically pleasing, I guess, feel to oh, it, rather than rather. having a cage with a you know a, a block of right. suet in it or something. But but yeah, there's a bird feeding's come a long ways yeah. in terms if, of its if, design. So if someone were to come in today, you know, we're having this tail end of this red pole invasion here mm-hmm. in the valley, and you know, there's a, a few red cross bills around. Mm-hmm. Um, haven't seen that many siskins this winter. Mm-hmm. But, you know, what would you recommend if someone came in and said, oh, I want to start feeding now? Are you going to try to get them to feed the winter birds right now? Or are you going to set them up for spring to 
you know, you know start establishing it as a feeding station? You know, a lot of it, you know, a lot of the seed and the seed mixes, you know, appeal to a lot of the different birds. Um, you know, we are trying to change gears into the spring, you know, with the bluebirds and things. You know, we got a little more mealworm type stuff mm-hmm. that we're kind of setting up. And, um, you know, this is a good transition period. I heard a red-winged blackbird singing the other day. Yeah. <laughs> so it's, it's... It's spring already. It's spring already. <laughs> and it's kind of that, uh, that transition period. But I would say... Kind of just keep consistent with what you're doing and see, you know, see what happens. Um, uh, yeah. Yeah. It won't be long and they're all going to, you know, they're going to be back. So And so the mealworms, those are just the freeze, they're freeze dried? Yeah. Or? Yeah. They're just oh. freeze dried. You know, obviously they, the bluebirds like the live ones, but, uh, you know, we have these little, these little cups with little hoods on them. You just put a few of them in there and they, they, they love stuff like that. Mm-hmm. And, you know, the woodpeckers, uh, will come to snatch them. You too. know, we've got some mealworm suet, um, that people have said work really well, you yeah. know, because the woodpeckers like to like to come in and get on that. And uh, but yeah, it's it's most people would recommend you know that you feed all year round, right? You know, if you want to maximize the the number of birds to your your feeders. So mm-hmm. I just tell them you know just keep going with what you're doing, and and you know there's there's a transition period. And there's one one's going to kind of you know go come and go, and the other's going to start coming in. So. So what would you re- recommend so I get that Siberian Act Center in my yard? <laughs> well, <laughs> that's, you got me on that one. It happened once. <laughs> it wasn't my yard, but it happened once. Was that down in Bozeman? That was uh, south of Livingston. Oh, down wow. there, there was a Siberian accent in 2003. Wow. Yeah. The only state record. But that was that weird that weird period of time where Idaho had two different act centers. We had one. There was one in Oregon. Yeah, those things are so unpredictable. I, you know, you just, I guess you just hope that you have something up, a feeder up to, and to bring them in. There was one somewhere this year, and I, and I can't remember yeah. where. It was a little bunning over in uh, Joseph, Oregon. Uh-huh. So there's a few rarities that you yeah. yeah, out in there. So yeah, those are hard to predict. But I, they always I, come I, to feeders. That's the funny yeah. A lot of the songbirds, you know, those rarities, they always show up at feeders because the only place they can be predictable. Yeah, you know? yeah. Yeah, well, I, I guess that's just more reason to keep your feeders up. Yeah. Yeah. And so, you know, you started this business and you work in here and it's just two of you now. Yeah. So are you finding time to go birding at all or are you you pretty tied to the... (laughs) You know, I was just telling my partner the other day that I've got a little cabin fever because I, you know, you start a small business and as you you know, you've done your your own things and you're you're sort of married to it and it's it's like, you know, you got to live it. And so I've been pretty tied down. That's that's no doubt, but I am looking forward to. You know, we we don't open till ten um, here in the winter months. Uh, it's gonna you know get a little earlier here in the spring, but as the sunlight you know mm-hmm. gets, gets earlier and earlier, morning. you know I'll be able to get up and get out and and do some birding you know in the mornings and things All like right. that. But it's uh, and my partner you know Peggy she still works uh, at the hospital over there at community three days a week, mm-hmm. so it's just me you know three days a week and then. Than us, which makes it hard. But yeah. I'm definitely uh, itching to <laughs> itching yeah, to get out. I, I I feel like I've become a little bit disconnected from all that just because of the the busyness of this. Right. But and you know what? So how long have you been birding? And what's you been know, your experience? You know, I I got my degree, my undergrad degree here in 2000 from the university, and it was shortly after that I met Denver Holt mm-hmm. um, and started working with him. Um, and so I've been involved with the birds, you know, for about 15 years. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I've never called myself like a a real outstanding birder mm-hmm. or, you know, like a real um, fanatic about it, I guess. Um, I, I've had a lot of different passions in terms of, you know, I really love wildflowers and, and insects and things like that. So my career has kind of been, even though it's been focused on owls and birds in a way, I, I'd say that, you know... I've got a lot of other interests that have kind of spread it out, you know. It's so not, naturalist it's not just, mercantile really encompasses that, that term naturalist. That's and, the intent, yeah. you know, to cover to cover everything. And that's kind of why we chose our logo blocks with the, you know, the butterfly and the mammal pond mm-hmm. and the bird and the flower to kind of represent, you know, those major taxa that a, a naturalist would be. Uh, would be uh, <laughs> Excuse me. There we go. Ghostbusters. <laughs> but so yeah, that that was the 
You know, in working with Denver, that's something that we kind of he kind of pushes and, and teaches is to you know that even though we're trying to specialize in owls, you know, you really need to to have a broader view, you know, and because you know, as well, an that's totally that's totally evidenced by his mobile library in that <laughs> suburban. Yeah, yeah the the two hundred and fifty <laughs> titles that he carries around or whatever. So that was kind of instilled in me with him. Um, and, and you know, as being an ecologist and biologist, that you know everything's kind of interrelated. Right. So you need to be able to understand, you know, the the, the food, the prey for the species, and the bugs, and, and mm-hmm. you know, and the and the grasses and the vegetation, how all of that interacts, you know. Um, so. Mm-hmm. And when you worked for Denver, you you were a field a field assistant for his owl surveys. Mm-hmm. And you started that right after college. You graduated in wildlife? Or yeah, wildlife biology. Wildlife. So you actually got a job. Yeah. Semi-related to your degree, right? <laughs> yeah, which was, it was, uh, that's shocking, I know. I know. Most, <laughs> most of us become bank tellers. It is. It's a tough, it's a tough field, you know. And I was, I was lucky enough to meet Denver and he, uh, he offered me an internship to go up to Barrow, Alaska mm-hmm. with him. Um, so I did that my first summer and then it was shortly after that, you know, he, Put he he put me on, and it's sort of been you know off and on over the years. You know, I've, I've been in like full time capacity, and then it's been seasonal, and right. so it's kind of went come and gone. But uh, but a large part of the you know the last twelve years have been spent with with Denver and doing things. And so you're twenty four, twenty twenty five. You started <laughs> working for Denver. Uh, I was about twenty two. I think twenty two. So what's it like? You you grew up here. Mm-hmm. So yep. what's it like to kind of get plucked out of here and go literally to the end of the earth? And we'll pause for a customer. <laughs> Hi, Deborah. So the question is, what's it like, you know, getting you know plucked out of Missoula mm-hmm. and then end up at the literally the end of the earth at Barrow? I mean, there's no <laughs> nowhere else to go. You've you've made yeah, it. you've run out of land in Barrow. You know, as a young person, it was really exciting. You know. Um, and, and way different. It was, it was a little bit of culture shock. I mean, Barrow going going up to Barrow for three months, mm-hmm. where you're totally disconnected, was uh, it was shocking, you know, because you don't have there's no bars, there's no mm-hmm. this or that, there's no real entertainment. So you, it was a shock, but it was really exciting to be up there, you know, and seeing polar bears and whales, and um, it, it was it was kind of profound. It was one of the things kind of set the seed, you know, to to want to pursue the right. whole career and you know and stuff like that and keep it going. And so you're you're in Barrow, and that was on on the Owl Research Institute snowy owl portion of their research, right? And so how how do you you just walk across the tundra and look for <laughs> snowy owls? That's, that's that's pretty much it. You know, we there's only um, basically there's only really like two roads in Barrow that, mm-hmm. that kind of lead out into the tundra. Um, so we would ride ATVs. Mm-hmm. Um, and we'd just kind of drive down the road, and then we'd have, you know, we'd block off our study area, which is about, I think, 100 square miles or something, and you just kind of block it off into into segments, and that, that's it. You just kind of go out, and you you hike. You, you got to put hip boots on, though. All the hiking is hiking in hip boots because it's so wet out of the tundra with the thaw ponds. And, so, yeah, you're just slogging across this wet tundra. So the water just pools up on top of the permafrost? And then, yep, uh-huh. yeah, and it, it just kind of sits there all, all summer, and... And then and it's really kind of it's like walking on a sponge out there on the tundra because it's really squishy and you know there's a lot of lichens and things like that and so yeah you just slog across and and the owls you know being white against that kind of brownish they background they, they just stand out you know there are swans up there but that was kind of the idea yeah you just kind of walk around and you know use your binoculars and if you see a a white thing sitting on a mound you're kind of like oh we got to go investigate it you know because right. that's where they're they're doing so a lot of walking. Wow. And so when you're looking at the owls, you, you're first determining presence or absence in each mm-hmm. little section of this study area. Mm-hmm. And then are you capturing those owls and banding or you know, is it more observational? It's, it's more observational. Mm-hmm. Uh, we never – we did on occasion, you know, try to, try to trap them. But we had so many other things going on. One of the things is, we, you know, we monitor the nests um, every three days. So every nest gets a check every three days. And, you know, when you have like 30 nests or something in the study area, that's, that's quite a lot to do. And, you know, and we go to the nest and, you know, the owls will cache lemmings around the, the nest. And so we'd, you know, we would weigh those and count those and sex those. And, 
and you know just kind of get like you know an idea of like the proportions they were eating you know in terms of it was in male or female lemmings things like that and how many they're feeding mm -hmm. and stuff so a lot of different stuff that we did and and you know one of the unique things was you know these owls will flush off the nest mm -hmm. and kind of decoy the females will as you approach and so we started measuring that, you know, and, and we found that, you know, it's about 400 meters or so. They slip off the nest, so you have to be real diligent. and and um, So do they flat nest or do they kind of amble away from You know, they, they kind of they kind of amble away, and then they'll, you know, they'll fly off a few, few meters, you know, and then just kind of sit there. And then as you get closer, they'll sort of, you know, maybe move farther off or whatever. So there's a bunch of stuff we were having to, you know, always think about. And we just never – and snowy owls are actually – really hard to catch <laughs> yeah well i mean they can see you coming <laughs> yeah yeah they're really hard yeah. you know we we just use balsha tree or noose carpets where we'd get mm -hmm. like you know a chicken wire and you tie the nooses on right. and you kind of stake it down and then you put a we build like a little dome in the middle and you just put a live lemming in there and we had some success with that trapping the females off the nest was a little easier because you could put that noose carpet right, right. there by the nest and they'd finish, let's go check and then out. you put a lemming in there and then they just kind of walk onto it. And, but we just never, with all the questions that never wanted to answer, there was never really a, a real concerted effort to, to ban the adults. We banned all the young mm -hmm. as, they, as they dispersed or whatever. But And did you hear any reports of any of those banded young, like where they ended up? Or You know, I know that Denver's had some, uh, a bird from Irina is her name over in Wrangell Island. She's been studying over there. That's kind of how it got started was um, Denver had a bird of hers show up in Barrow. Um, you know, I'd have to ask Denver. There, it's not a whole lot that we get a lot of band returns. You know, that one year he yeah. did put the satellite transmitters right. out and found some real interesting stuff. But, um, you know, I'd have to check on that. It's so not very You're awesome. saying, like, a bird went from Barrow to Wrangell Island. So it made mm -hmm. it made a, well, a westerly. Yeah. <laughs> went to the Far East by going west. Yeah. Uh, disper as dispersal as a juvenile? This was an adult. An adult snowy owl that had bred in Barrow, I believe. Um, and what Denver found when he put the tra satellite oh, transmitters wow. on it, he put four out on um, four breeding females. Mm -hmm. And it was real interesting. They, uh, two of them, I believe, went down to uh, um, St. Lawrence Island. Okay. And they spent the winter there. And we don't know if it was like near a pollinia or something of, of sea ducks or something, but they're out just kind of in the middle of Bering Sea. That's where the right. locations were. And the next spring, they headed over into Russia. Um, and then one of them, its location was, was there in you know, northern Siberia for the whole summer mm -hmm. that next summer, presumably breeding. And the next year, they kind of almost came back the same path. Then they, two of the females passed through Barrow within like a week of each other and they both ended up on like Victoria Banks Island for the whole summer. Right. So the Denver's kind of maybe theory or idea is is that maybe it's not like nomadic wandering in a true sense that maybe these owls kind of have a sense of these areas where these lemmings are. So they're working the fluctuations? Yeah, so they, they maybe just kind of cruise around the, the Arctic and, and check out these areas that they, they're familiar with and if there's no lemmings, they just kind of move on to the next area until they find an area where there's a good you know population, good that, population they can, yeah. that they could breed. It's real real interesting how, how predictable it was, you know. So, you know, going from Wrangell Island all the way over to the Canadian archipelago, mm -hmm. you know, over a period of, what, three years? Yeah, it was like right around there, maybe a little under three years. So, you know, crossing the Bering Sea. And, and when you mentioned the Polinias, which are those those current upwellings. Yeah. And uh, spectacolider, right? Yep. That's the winter yeah. spectacolider is these yep. Polinias. So is it kind of theory that these owls are hanging out to Polinias and just predating on spectacoliders? You know, that was one of the, one of the ideas, you know, that we, we thought of. We, we don't have any way of validating it. But, you know, these, these sea ducks do get, become flightless. Mm -hmm. When they're, you know, they kind of molt and stuff in these polinias. And so, yeah, it's possible, you know, uh, that they're just kind of sitting there on the edge and just plucking off ducks. Well, that makes sense because, you know, that, that, that bubble genius, you do have to eat the fish, uh, the fish owls. Yeah, yeah, right. So yeah. maybe there's something about it that they can act, yeah. you know, like other members of the genus. And there, I think there's been fish a record, <laughs> there's been a record or two of snowy owls eating fish, I think. Mm -hmm. Um you know they're pretty they're pretty adaptable and uh, you know we've we've seen them 
up there in Barrel where uh, they call it the shooting station where the, the Eskimos will go out and shoot, uh, you know, the eiders and stuff, mm-hmm. the king eiders, and, you know, to bring back for subsistence. And, you know, we'll, we've seen several cases of the owls sitting out there on the ice and, and kind of, you know, picking up on wounded ducks or whatever mm-hmm. and stuff. So there's no way of knowing, but, you know, being in the middle of the Barren Sea all winter, you kind of got to think yeah. that there, there was something there. Well, the, like a plenty of what's the other food sort? I mean, yeah, that, polar that bear dung, or the occasional, <laughs> the occasional, you know, right. whale, uh, seal carcasses hauled out, or you know, that's uh, that's about it. I mean, yeah. it was either sea ducks or something like that, and you know, snowies will scavenge a little bit, but well, it's just atypical for an owl. I mean, yeah, it's yeah, not what they do. Yeah, so who knows? But that's kind of one of the ideas is maybe they were. So they're almost behaving on in the northern reaches. Of their range, the same way they behave when they come south. It, it's really yep. this this issue of food availability and and working yep. fluctuations and rodent microtene rodent populations. To, yeah, uh, yeah, you know. And one of the one of the theories is that you know these owls come down um, with these eruptions because of, there's a food supply crash up north. Mm-hmm. We've always kind of tended to think that maybe it's more of that. You know, because on these eruptions, you generally just see the first-year birds, the really right. barred, um, juvenile sort of sort of birds. So we've always kind of thought, had the mind of thinking, well, maybe it's because they had a really good breeding year somewhere. Well, that's what happened last year. Is they, yeah. they had a super good yeah. vole year, and then we had this huge eruption. Yep. We still have a mm-hmm. mini eruption mm-hmm. this year. Yeah, and, you know, I don't know. There's kind of a leapfrog sort of theory, you know, that the adult females – sort of stay farther north mm-hmm. and that the you know the adult males kind of winter like in between maybe in the canadian provinces and then you know the the juveniles in the first years are the ones that kind of come farthest south and i have no idea why right. why that would be you know we we tend to think that when you see these eruptions you know it means that there was just a good breeding year up in the in the arctic somewhere right and there's just a bunch of a bunch of birds and they're kind of just dispersing and so the eruption is more more of an indication of abundance rather than scarcity i we tend to think so yeah you know that's that's what we tend to think but again nobody really has a good solid answer well, for any of that and i'm i, I was you know i'm wondering because it's so unusual especially for us in northwest montana to have snowy owls two winters in a row yeah really odd yeah and even though there's far less snowy owls this year than last winter Mm -hmm. but i wonder you know how many of those birds were actually here last year and they kind of oh great food source i'm going back yeah because they're you know you don't see as many juveniles i mean there's a bird over by perma Mm-hmm. That's almost no black at all, pure white. Pure white, yeah, you and know. that would indicate you know an adult male. Yeah, because um, the snowy owls, you know, they lose the plumage markings over time, and both sexes do. Um, and it's just the males that eventually become that pure white. But yeah. Um, yeah, it's really it's really interesting, and that's you know it might just be that they do know these areas, you know, and they kind of they kind of cruise around. They just they have kind of this. Um, institutional memory, if you will, right. where where they're going and. So sometimes it's tough to say if they're true nomads or not, or if mm-hmm. they're just kind of you know keying in on these areas. And the, the unique part about the Mission Valley is, if, um, I don't know if you heard the Rocky Mountain Trench, right? Which you know leads from you know Alaska all the way down into and terminates here in the Mission Valley. Right. And so you know we often think that those birds just kind of you know are just following just that. follow the trench down, and and then once they get here, they just kind of. Float around and yeah. try to find an area with some good prey. Well, at least one owl made it over over by Wisdom. There's yeah. reports, so I mean, it must yeah. just come right through. And yeah, <laughs> there was a report. Uh, we never did track it down, but there was a friend of mine was seeing a snowy owl here by the Frenchtown Mill. I heard about that a, one about too. a month ago. I heard that one too. Yeah. So, but nobody ever could find it again so it's probably right. just passing through maybe it's one that ended up in wisdom or something right well like the hawk owl that was right on the yeah. other side so there's yeah. this influx of these more what we think it was more northerly birds yep. are showing up here more often yeah so you're in barrel you're doing this owl research so you come back and then what do you transition into research wise when you get back from barrow generally it's the long-eared owls mm-hmm. we start you know we'll get back from barrow about september 1st right around in there and then you know, then there's maybe a little lag time, but then come October we jump right into the um, the long-eared work where we're mm-hmm. going out into the you know the wooded gullies out here west of town and 
and then up in the Mission Valley, and you just you know looking for communal roosts, mm-hmm. um, things like that, and then. You know, we monitor during the winter months. It's kind of a long-eared project. That's kind of what the Institute does. You know, monitoring these communal roosts and, and banding, and then, then come March, um, come March, it's kind of just like, uh, boy, it can be a real crazy thing. Like last year, where we had a good breeding year with just about all the species. You know, right. we were finding sawets and pygmies, and and um, you know, the long ears had a good breeding year and stuff. So we we try to monitor as many of those species as we can so it can get real busy in the spring running you know one day you could be up in lost trail pass checking burial boxes and the next day you're in glacier park chasing hawk owls and you know and then in between you're you're trying to find some barn owls at crow reservoir or something you know so it's, it, the breeding season is a, is a tough one so on the boreals you mm-hmm. guys usually you start uh checking the nest boxes march or February? It's, I think Denver usually goes up there. It's, it's usually around, you know, Aprilish, somewhere right. in there. You know, is when we don't really get up there till then. We do have snow machines, but they never seem to work. <laughs> so it's kind of tough getting back up in there. Equipment failure. Yeah. Yeah, but it seems like, you know, in, in April, starting in April, we'll start checking the boxes at least once. And then, you know, we usually get anywhere from zero to four or five boxes occupied up there. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's kind of more of a, I don't want to call it a hobby project, but more of, it's kind of just something we do on the side. Right. You know, because all those boxes, there's hundreds of boxes that got put up in the early 90s up there. And so we just continue to monitor them. But that's not really a... We just hike those trails and yeah, play back. And- yeah, we do. You know, it's a lot of the boxes are kind of mingled around that... Um, Cheap Joseph ski area, right out there. So we just you know access the ski trails, and there's some logging roads you can get back in and and do right do that. So in the summertime, I know you worked on one of my favorite owls, which is the flammulated. Uh-huh. Yeah. And so there's a whole story about you know detecting flammulated nests, <laughs> yeah. and, and you were involved in that. So. Yeah, yeah. You know, I did. Um, we started that project in 2008 as part of my uh, my grad work at the mm-hmm. Environmental Studies Program. And, yeah, the, the intent was just go out and, and find flammated owl nests, you know, which, oh, hey, it can't be that hard, right? I mean, they, they're in cavities and, you know, you just uh, go out and find them. Well, the thing about flams is they're really nocturnal. Mm-hmm. So, you know, all the work takes place from and in the summertime, you know, you're – you're out there at 10 o'clock at night is kind of when the work starts, and you're, you're out there till maybe 2 or so. And, um, it doesn't leave a lot of time for beer. No. You know, that's one of the things, especially <laughs> in the summertime when, you you know, it's it's a nice warm summer night and you want to go down to the depot or something. you got to, well, i got to go out and survey for owls. But that was an interesting project. You know, we we did most of the research up in, uh, up in the Marshall Canyon area. I got what I needed. I needed to just get oh. some information. Yeah. Thanks, Deborah. Thank you. Yeah. So, yeah, the the original intent of that was just to, you know, there's not a lot known about there. You know, the Avian Science Center had done some surveys, Mm -hmm. region-wide surveys, and it was it's kind of the classic owl story where you know, okay, we think that they're uncommon or rare or whatever, just simply because they haven't been really surveyed before. Because they come, they come back in May. Because wasn't it uh, up Patty Canyon was the first detections? Yeah, and that yeah. was uh, oh I forget his name yeah. from the Forest Service. Um, Starts with an H. His last name. Oh uh, yeah, yeah, I know what you're talking about. Mm, it'll come to me. Yeah, it'll come to me. But he had it up in Patty Canyon. Up in Patty and Canyon, Canyon. like and Denver, you know, had detected them back in the. Uh, Mid '80s, up in the Marshall Canyon mm-hmm. area, Woods Gulch, up kind of in the Rattlesnake area. Um, so, our idea was is we, you know, we didn't have a whole lot of money, obviously, and so we wanted to keep it real small, the study area, so we could access it and get the, and get the vigor. So, yeah, we did a lot of work up Patty Canyon. That's a great area for him, and then up Marshall Canyon um, as well. But the idea was is okay. You know, the Avon Science Center found a bunch of these guys mm-hmm. throughout Western Montana, and so all of a sudden. It's that bird you think is, is uncommon is all of a sudden maybe well, more common than you think. But the thing was is there's just nothing known about their nesting biology here in Montana. You know, there's Brian Linkhart from Colorado. You might have heard his right. name. He's sort of the flam god, if you will. 
he's been doing it for almost 30 years down there. And so, you know what that's called? <laughs> You're really famous to about eight people. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, right. That's, that's the truth. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, you know, there's good data out of Colorado, and there had been some breeding studies done in Idaho. There was nothing, you know, done here in Montana. And, and, you know, one of the ideas with these flams was they're really tied to these big ponderosa pine stands, you know, mm-hmm. these, you know, historical, like, you know, savanna type things. And so we just said, well, let's go out there and let's see what we can find. And um, we started doing the survey and we started turning up a lot of birds. And we were really excited because we are like, oh, we're going to find a bunch of nests. Well, it didn't work out that way because... You know, they, they are cavity nesters, and they're very nocturnal. So one of the ways we would try to find them is we use a peeper camera. Mm-hmm. And it's just a 50-foot pole with a camera mounted on the, uh, the end of it, and you'd have a monitor. And so when, when we'd find these areas where they were calling, we'd go back and resurvey, and if they're there again, we'd try to get as close as possible to the song trees without um and they said song trees. Now, are these different from the nesting trees? Yeah. You know, their, their territories aren't real real big they're about maybe 450 meters you know like diameter sort of thing mm-hmm. if it is kind of but you know they're not a circle but they're not real huge but what they'll do is is they that's what they kind of do is they'll peruse around that territory and they'll just go to certain trees and they'll just they'll sing and they'll move to the next tree and they'll sing and all these trees are generally close to the, the cavities that they mm-hmm. want to advertise so you know we would we would detect them and then we try to get as close as possible to those trees you know, it was a little misleading because if the bird's out on the edge of its territory singing, you know, you're, you're not quite sure where the core of it is or anything. But once we'd mark those, then we'd go back with the peeper camera and we'd search that whole area for cavities. Mm-hmm. Any cavity we find, we'd GPS mark them and then we'd, we'd stick the peeper camera in there and then check. Um, and what we, you know, what we found and what Denver had kind of found in some of his studies is, you know, all cavities are not created equal. So something that might look really appealing and um and the flams are kind of odd because they're a small owl that likes a really big chamber and a really big uh, entrance hole so you're looking at what flicker nests old pileated oh, old pileated and flicker type deals um and in our study it turned out i think we found seven nests over the years now and it, they're almost all in, in pileated woodpecker mm-hmm. type cavities you know the big three and a half inch openings right. with you know anywhere from eight to 15 inches deep with a you know, an internal diameter that's about 10 inches or more. Right. So they, it's kind of odd. They, I don't know why why that is, you know, whether it's a, a response to, you know, predators or something. Maybe it makes it easier for them to escape having a, a larger hole or something. But um, so we'd go around and we, we were able to turn up a few nests. Um, and then we measured the nest trees and things like that. And, you know, our results are pretty similar. I mean, we don't have a whole lot of data because we don't have a whole lot of nests, but... Our results are pretty similar to what other researchers have found, you know, in terms of, yeah, they're using larger cavities by pileated woodpeckers, generally in larger trees. However, we did find a, um, in our study, we found, you know, the dead, big, dead ponderosa pine snags are kind of what they like, but also we found a nest in a 11-inch diameter broken-off dug fir tree. A hollow top, or? It, it was a... Yeah, it was just a broken top tree. Right. It wasn't very. It was really just about this big. You know, it wasn't right. that big, but it looked like there had been affiliated. You know, worked, ex- on, it. worked on it, and they nested there two years in a row. The flams did, mm-hmm. and then last year we found a nest in a live tree, in, in like a broken off limb that had kind of been excavated by a, a flicker, or a affiliated, or whatever. So, so really, they're keen on the opportunity for a nest site, but not. Whether it's live or dead, is that kind of yeah? I, it's it's or is this one weird bird? It, it could <laughs> just be one one weird thing, you know. Yeah. I mean, I know down in the southwest they uh, they'll nest in live gamble oak mm-hmm. quite a bit um, um, with the uh, acorn woodpeckers making making the the cavities okay. and stuff. But here it seems, you know, and we don't we just really don't have enough of a sample to make any inferences on that. I mean, I think that. Is sort of indicative of the variability there, but my hunch is, is probably as we turn up more nests, you know, it's going to kind of lay out with those bigger, mm-hmm. those bigger diameter ponderosa pines, um, and and it may just be you know the the cavity, you know, is is what they're really keen on, you know, is is the size of the cavity and the uh, and the quality of it. And I, I mentioned earlier, not all cavities are created equal because a lot of times, you know, you'll see this beautiful you know entrance hole, and you'll stick the peeper camera in there, and the, and the floor will be rotted out. 
Right. It'll be hollow in there, or or it'll just be like two inches deep. Right. You know, so it, it's a little misleading in terms of snag management. You know, you can't just kind of go out there and be like, oh, there's a great hole. Let's keep that. You almost have to evaluate the interiors to, to, to really know if you're providing the cavities that the owls are going to You need snag use. ultrasound. You do. <laughs> you do. <laughs> and I, I wish that we, we had a better system of that fever camera because yeah. – it's uh, it's it's a little awkward, you know, carrying that thing around, but it's very effective. Now, were you guys doing any banding on the flams then? We did, we did. In our first year, um, we weren't able to do that, um, but then our second year, we did. We found three nests, and we were able to band both adults and all of the young. I think it was a total of twelve or thirteen, something like that, mm-hmm. with the adults and the young. And and the cool part about that is. Um, you know, flams have been shown to have pretty strong sight fidelity. Mm-hmm. So they're presumed to be long-distance migrants, you know, in this, this part of the world where they, they, you know, maybe winter in central Mexico or, the, you know, right. deep southern U.S. And they, they come up here to breed and six, seven weeks and then they're out. <laughs> yeah, yeah, really. It's pretty fast. You know, their incubation's like 25 days and the chicks are in the nest like 21 days right. or something. And then it's kind of – and with these smaller owls, when they bail, they bail. I mean, they're, they're yeah. literally – like we saw with the pygmy owls last year, they're literally able just to fly right out of the cavity. Yeah. Whereas some of these larger species, you know, have to branch out first. and then. Um, but Linkhart in Colorado has shown that a lot, I mean, the, the same birds are coming back to the same areas every year. Right. And so what was exciting for us um, after we banded that year was, is we had, um, we were able to record the first tangible evidence of Cypadelia, Montana. We actually right. recaptured a, uh, a male that had bred in the same territory um, the year before. We recaptured him, and he ended up breeding with a different female in the same nest cavity that he had nested with a female the year before. And then at another So there's site fidelity for the males. Yeah, right, for the males. But not necessarily. The females are just looking for the best best deal. Yeah, (laughs) pretty much. Yeah, Yeah, pretty much, pretty much. They're kind of just going in and... And cruising around and saying, "Hey, you know, this one looks good. This one looks, you know, good." But we did document a, a female site fidelity where mm-hmm. that little small tree I was telling you about. We never did um, weren't able to capture the male at that nest, but we we captured an owl making food deliveries. It turned out to be the same female that nested in that same cavity the year before. Wow. So really neat stuff, uh, you know. And it was the first evidence of that. I mean, something you kind of expect. Right. You know, given their the literature and what's known about them, but and so how how far up are the, are the nest holes? Are we talking like forty feet, thirty feet? So they tend to be pretty pretty high up there, and that's one of the logistical problems we had with with the banding and stuff. Is um, you know the one nest was about forty feet. The the live tree that we found last year, the nest was I had to look at the exact number, but it was well over sixty feet. Right. And, you know, the one in the small tree was, it was only about, the tree itself was 22 feet, and the nest was only 11 feet up there, but it was growing out of a rock outcropping in a big cliff right <laughs> off one side. So, you know, it made it a little more difficult. Um, and so what we do is, to, is to, to access those, you know, we have to get a tree climber, mm-hmm. and they just put on their spikes and stuff, and we got a guy that does the whole, you know, lineman gear thing, and right. he climbs up there and sets a top rope for us. And then we just leave that top rope in place, and then when we have to... And then you guys are Jumoring up? Is that how you're doing Yeah, yeah, we just have a belayer, and then, you know, somebody's somebody's got their spikes on, and they just kind of free climb up the tree. And oh, so belay. you're using spikes, you're not Jumoring? No, 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 we, it's pretty, some of these trees are, like the one tree, the nest, this was halfway around. So he's looking like a five or six foot diameter. Yeah, it was yeah. a huge, huge tree, about 120 feet tall. And, right. And so what we do is, and, and my, my right-hand man, Matt Larson, who I think right. you know and works for right. Denver, he, um, he's a little more brave than I am. I have to admit that I'm not a big fan of heights. So <laughs> I really have to work myself up to get up those trees. But So a lot of times what you do is to catch the adults is, is you just take a hand net and the guy would climb up there, you know, on his rope and with a belayer. And then, you know, the females, one of the cool thing about the flams too is, they kind of stick their you know their heads out of the they cavity. They look down at you. Yeah, like you know, boreals do that. Mm-hmm. Sawwits will do that. Um, you know, the pygmies generally don't. Some owls do. Some owls don't. But the flams do. So she'll, you know, the female generally will kind of see you coming, but she kind of holds tight. And then you just you, you shimmy up there until you're within distance, and you just slip that hand net over the cavity. She flies into it. 
the tricky part was capturing the males as they're making food deliveries. So I don't know. There's been numerous times Matt Larson's had to sit on a branch in pitch black and just at about off. 40 feet, you know, above the, and, you know, you're on a slope, like a 40% slope. So, and he just have to sit there and wait until that male would make a delivery. And then he just put that net over the hole. And when the owl come flying back out, you know, we were able oh, to yeah. get him. And then he'd have to, you know, secure it as we blade him down. And it, it's probably not the, safest thing in the world but you know how else are you going to get up that 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 high and um so it's it's logistically it's 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 tough because they are we're finding that they do nest Mm -hmm. which is real similar to uh, evelyn bowl over in oregon did a study on them uh, in the early 90s and she was finding you know that they're generally using pileated woodpecker holes at a pretty great height i can't remember what her mean height was but so it's pretty pretty consistent with that you know some of these other areas in idaho they find them a little bit lower mm-hmm. uh, but we're finding yeah they, they like it tall and so all these slams in the dark how many observations have you like daylight observation of a flam <laughs> have you had mm, maybe two that was at a nest where we we were able to locate the roost the roost tree where this one guy liked to hang out mm-hmm. so we, we were able to you know we'd go up there to monitor at night or something we were able to to kind of find him, but uh, not many. Right. Not many. They're very difficult to find um, during the day because they're so tiny, you know. They're, right. So I tiny mean, and so far up. And so far up, and they sit really close to the, you know, the bowl mm-hmm. of the tree. And, and I, they're, as you know, a lot of owls are very cryptic, cryptically right. colored and patterned. And I don't know if I've seen more of a cryptically colored Owl, owl or patterned owl than a flam. I mean, literally, when they get against that bark, it's like you cannot tell right. that they're even there. So we've probably had more nighttime encounters, oddly mm-hmm. enough, to where, you know, we'll just kind of be out there monitoring area, and we've had pairs kind of just, like, fly up right in front of our faces, you know, as they're copulating or, you know, courting or right. doing whatever. But um, You think they see the, the headlamps and are just kind of... Interested to check it out. What you know, that I, is. I don't know. They're very bold. Yeah, I yeah. mean, they're not. They're they're. Not I know they respond to playback. They do really well. They do, and that's that's you know, our survey protocol was a mix of passive listening and playback. Mm-hmm. So we do, I think, eight minute or ten minute stations at each point, and each point's you know, space four hundred meters apart. Right. And then we do, you know, ten. And you're minute, doing that on a transect. Yeah, generally. Generally along trails or roads. Right. Something like that. You know, where, wherever the easiest access is. Um, didn't do a whole lot of, uh, of bushwhacking necessarily. Right. But, um, but, you know, they're so ventriloquial. You can hear them from quite a ways away. Right. Um, but so we do the passive listening where we start with like two minutes of passive listening, mm-hmm. then one minute playback, and then two minutes of passive listening, one minute playback, and then like three minutes of listening. Mm-hmm. The thing that we did is if we detected an owl passively, we didn't use any playback because we didn't want to draw the owls away from their core right. territories. Right. Um, you know, a perfect example of that was is a couple of years ago we captured a female. We're in, in how we trap them is we we use mist nets. Mm-hmm. And we set up kind of a you know a wall or some sort of triangle or U or L shaped thing, and then we try to get the nets as, as high as possible. One of the things we noticed when we tried to trap them was they they don't like to come down very low. They'll they'll flip. So up. most of the moths they're eating are are trying to the canopy. Like more arboreal type deals, and and they'll they'll foliage glean off those needles mm-hmm. around. Right. So we just noticed that even with the audio lure, they wouldn't they wouldn't want to come down very low, like below like twenty mm-hmm. feet. Right. So we what we did is we just got like you know extra long rebar, and then we put our conduit so the base of the net was about where I could walk underneath it. So about six feet, six. You know the bottom. So the you know the nets are like I don't know six feet. So you know we were trying to get it up there as high as possible, and we had some luck with that, um, but not a whole lot. But the, the, my point was is that we we caught a female that was nesting over. I think it was like 350 meters away from her nest right. site. We drew her that far away. Right. And we were able to capture her, and then we put a radio transmitter on her, and that's we, we tracked her back to her, her nest site. But So you can, you, you really can, you know, draw them off quite a ways. Mm-hmm. Um, and so the, for the purposes of us, um, you know, finding nests and core areas, we, 
we wouldn't utilize the playback if we heard him passively, or right. or if we heard him like after the first playback period. There's no we, need. We to. didn't do it again, you know, right. just because we wanted to kind of hone in on those areas. But and so they're such a fascinating little little owl, you know. Mm-hmm. They're such and they're such an outlier. And I know so so many people, you know, really want to see a flam, and it's yeah, yeah. They're kind of that. And I always say I I can have you hear one. <laughs> <laughs> Well, and that's the thing, you know, we've taken a few folks up there, you know, it's, it's a huge lifer bird, yeah, for people. I mean, yeah. And that's what everybody wants to do is they want to see them, but it's, um, it's, it's not very, you know, it's, it's tough unless you have a really good light um, and you're using that playback to really draw them in closely. Um, Which is what I think a lot of those photographs, those, some of those daytime photos I've seen. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. You got to wonder if some of those are staged, or not, you know, or if. I mean, I know Linkhart down in Colorado. He's got a real, you know, eye for locating their roosts and stuff because mm-hmm. they used to, you know, noose pull them mm-hmm. off the roosts and things like that. So, I mean, I, it's it's possible, but boy, you really got to work at it, you know. Right. And a lot of times they're so far up that it's not even, you know, it's just tough. It remind, tough did to you see them. the? Uh, the National Geographic special that came out between National Geographic and Cornell about birds of paradise. Uh-huh, I haven't seen that. And one. they focused on the biologist and the cameraman formed a team, and the uh-huh. idea was to observe and photograph uh-huh. all. I think it's thirty-five species of birds of paradise in uh-huh. New Guinea. And they showed this photographer, and he was literally jumaring up like 140 feet up into the canopy. Oh and he had set up a blind, and then another remote camera on at an opposite wow. or opposing angle. And so that's what I'm thinking about, you know, <laughs> these birds of paradise see these pictures. He has to go way up in the canopy. Yeah. And, take it. and so I think, for like, if you want to get a picture of a flam, you'd have to do such a similar thing. You get would. way up in the canopy and get a blind or a really yep. good hiding spot and wait. And wait. <laughs> and wait and wait. You know, the, the beauty of flams is, is when they're, after the eggs hatch, you know, they're delivering. And we did some, you know, prey delivery counting. And they, geez, they were delivering, like, up to like 45 times in like 30 minutes sometimes. Like literally it was like twice a Fly minute. out, catch them off, come back. Come back. And they were just boom, boom, boom. And then as the chicks get a little bit older, the female gets into the mix. And then you'll get both of them just coming in. And, and so what are you, are you just putting a spotlight then at the nest hole and just. Yeah, we just had like a, you know, mag light or something. And, mm-hmm. and you can see them. Um, the cool thing about flams is you see them flying around, they look like bats, you know, because right. they're, they're really long-winged, which is indicative of a long-distance migrant. Right. But they, they literally look like a big bat flying around. Right. And so you can you generally see their silhouettes as they're flying around. But, yeah, we just sit by the cavity, and then and you just, you're staring up in the dark. And then if you see a, a, a shadow or something, then you're, you put the light up. And, oh, yeah, there's a, there's a delivery, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, but they really deliver. Uh, you know, so if you right. if you were in that position and had a blind, you know you could really you, get you some good stuff, right? You know, proper lighting during that during that period of time, you know. And I know some some folks have done uh, almost like you know, kind of this reddish sort of light, you know, where they illuminate. Mm-hmm. Like there was a study in Idaho that they really focused on like what they're eating, mm-hmm. so they wanted to you know ID the the bugs that they were eating, so they'd put like some artificial lighting up there. Good luck. Yeah, well, <laughs> I've often, I often wondered how, how you identify a, a bug in the middle of the night in an owl's bill. But, right, especially moths, um, which are just horrible to identify. To yeah, well. I mean, yeah. down the genus is easy enough. Yeah, and bad. I think that they were just kind of going to, to the genus level. But, you know, I think they did have some remote cameras as well. They were mm-hmm. kind of snapping pictures to sort of buttress what they were seeing, but. I wonder if, if it would be, you know, if you could use one of those trail cams and set yeah. that up, you know, put it up there, yeah. and then you wouldn't physically have to be up there. Yeah. You wouldn't even have to be, you wouldn't even have to have a count. You just put a trail cam. Yeah. Because I, I know the ones have infrared, you know, yeah. they shoot black and white infrared, and just yep. yeah. every time they well, come we, in and out, taking a picture. We were trying, we had one nest that was ideal for that, setting up a, you know, system like that, but we just never... You know the money thing, and we just mm-hmm. never were able to to get it up there in time. But it's pretty interesting, you know. I, I'm, you know, what's something like that going to really, you know, provide for you in terms of its, you know, conservation or things like that? I'm not sure, right? Because you're probably going to be eating the same 
sorts of things that they're eating in Idaho or right. Or well, here and you there, could but. find out, you know, some maybe it's a moth, maybe you know the moth genus keys on yeah. older growth or yeah something like that. Yeah, you, know. you or you could find maybe like a maybe they're timing the you know the phenology of their nesting with some of these hatches, you know, right. and, and, and what are those hatches? That that would we always wanted to get into doing some insect sampling, but it's just. There's so much work involved with yeah. that, and, and trying to trying to find the nests are hard enough. Right, so. it's just one more <laughs> that's, layer. That's like a whole different project, you know, that you could get into. But right. but they're uh, yeah, they're a great great neat bird, you know. And I I know you had mentioned they're kind of an outlier, and they they recently I don't know if it's been become official, but um, uh, Keening, the guy that writes the Owls mm-hmm. of the World um, textbook, or they're kind of it's kind of like a textbook, but it's called the Owls of the World, and the name of the geneticist is slipping my mind right now, but they're German fellows, mm-hmm. and they do a lot of you know mm-hmm. taxonomic work with DNA and stuff on on these species. They're the ones that are making pygmy owls so confusing. <laughs> it, it, it could be them, yeah. You know, they you know, and flams used to be Otis flamiolus, right? right. And there were six subspecies. Was it Siloscopes? Siloscopes. Yeah. yeah. So now that they're finding that they're not really related, you know, they thought they related to the old world scops owls. And the new world megascops or the screech right. owls, but now through these guys' analysis, mono, monotypic genus, they are now, you know, yeah. and so they are really unique, and they're and they're just endemic to the, you know North America here. Right. So it's really kind of cool that they're, but you know, snowy owls were like that at one point, right? Nyctea scandiaca, they right. were in their mon- now they're bubo because they're just a great horned owl with white that are white. <laughs> yeah. So those things change all the time, but the the flam is really unique because it's just in our part of the world, mm-hmm. and um, they're kind of their own. Their own little right. Thing, well, you know? I, I, I do have it as a grudging yard bird. <laughs> yeah, I, I always tell everyone I got. I have a yard. I bet you I'm the only yard <laughs> list you'll hear about with both black swift and flammulated owl <laughs> on my yard list. That's great. Well, there's a draw across the river, and I can hear them. Oh yeah. Summer, I could hear. Oh, them. cool. So, right <laughs> yeah. Well, they've got such a neat call that ventriloqual. Yeah. Like low. Matt Larson can do their call for you. You got to use your hands and like a oh, call that airy, yeah, yeah. You, to get that real low sort of resonating thing. But they they're really neat. And when they get that double hoot going, that you know. right. Well, I remember my my lifer flam was actually uh, up Paddy Canyon, uh-huh. walking around right right as it started to get dark. Yep. And I'll always remember that. Yeah, that was, yeah, that crazy canyon area up there yeah. on the backside of Sandals, really good. We've had. Seems like every year we've had three or four birds in that area. Mm-hmm. So you know, kind of bringing it back to the naturalist mercantile. <laughs> yeah. You know, what are your guys's uh, plans? You know, do you have events coming up, or mm-hmm. you know, what's going on with the store coming up in the future? You know, we do. Um, part of the whole thing is we do the first Friday every month, mm-hmm. um, and we're co- sort of dubbing it our expert in their field series. So mm-hmm. where we invite in a um, an expert in biology or natural history or or science in general or whatever and then we we have them come in and we have a pull down white screen and um you know it's it's more of an opportunity for the community to meet these experts and for them to mingle with the community right Um, because as you know you know you go and you you read about these guys in the paper and you know you go to an audubon meeting and you hear them talk but there's no real opportunity to kind of engage with them so it's really informal um so we, we have those events going on um you know, this summer we're going to be doing, um, you know, we're part of the downtown association now, so we're going to be doing, um, hosting kids activities during mm-hmm. uh, out to lunch and, oh, great. and the, you know, the evening out to dinner or whatever they call it they have on Thursday nights now. Oh, um, uh, I forget. Dinner out tonight, or I can't remember what it's called yeah. exactly, but we're doing, we're doing some of those things and, you know, eventually we're, we're trying to work into, you know, offering our own classes mm-hmm. here at the store in terms of. You know, like maybe in the fall, like doing some like leaf pressing sort of classes in the spring, kind of, um, you know, maybe focusing on, you know, bug mounting, you know, mountain butterflies and insect collection, things like that. Um, Wildflower identifications. Um, I really love to press wildflowers, you know, Mm -hmm. so, you know, we're we're trying to trying to eventually add those sorts of things to the business model um, as as it goes. and then we'd, we'd really like to start doing some, some touring out of here, too, you know, doing, like, day trips for, for people. And, oh, uh, neat. You know, we're, we're sort of um, 
in the process of talking with Montana River Guides out there by Alberton, mm-hmm. and they do scenic floats, and so we're we're trying to maybe partner with them to get some interpretive guides on their on their rides That's and stuff idea, like yeah. that, and you know, and, and sort of doing some more things like that um, to get to get it out there. Because I really love you know working for Denver. I mean, he is obviously a really good natural right. history guy, and he works for Victor Emanuel, and so picked up a few things here and there, you know. And I, I just really like um, you know engaging with the people that way. Well, I always find the biggest thing about being a guide when when I lead trips is most of your job is just to be a storyteller. Yeah. Because there's all, there's so many, there's so many gaps. Yeah. And even when you have people who are experienced and they're used to that, you got <laughs> yeah. It's like you have to keep them entertained and yeah. engaged, otherwise they check out on you. Yeah, exactly. And that's that's why the whole you know having a real well-rounded sort of understanding mm-hmm. of the bugs and the plants and everything really helps out there, right? right. Because if you're on like a birding trip, you're not seeing birds, and you're able to, you know, talk about the, I don't know, even the geology right. of the of the river and the landscape, you know, just something to kind of keep them engaged. We often pull out the stars, you know, right. when we're doing owl work and whether it's migration trapping or surveying, and we different constellations. <laughs> yeah, there's andrometer. Yeah, if it never fails, I remember one year we took a reporter out in Glacier. We were doing surveys and didn't hear one owl the whole night, and then. The whole article ended up being about constellations. Right. <laughs> you know, because that's all we can They're do. They're astronomy you know? experts as well. Yeah, that's great. But, yeah. Well, that's great. Yeah. Well, Matt, thank you for spending time with us at Moore yeah. and Birds, and wish you the best of luck. Well, thanks, Rad. Appreciate it. <laughs> yeah, that's great. And then we'll-